People, what are you waiting for? The COVID vaccine is here. The election is over or almost over, depending on how you, which way you <laughs> roll with your votes. But you should be happy and you should be supporting independent journalism. Support Let's Run.com for just 30 cents a day. Go to letsrun.com slash subscribe. Get bonus content, special message board features. Filter out all the non-running threads if you want. Get huge shoe discounts. And if you sign up now and email me, Robert, at Let's Run, I'll send you one of the few remaining 15940 GOAT t-shirts. Almost totally sold out. If you want to buy one of those, go to shop.letsrun.com. But they will be gone any, any day now. In this week's edition of the Let's Run.com Track Talk podcast, it's official. Let's Run.com Jinx is as live and well, as strong as ever. Jordan Hesay has bombed a half marathon. Is her career in jeopardy? William & Mary track and field is back, baby. Oh, wait. Clemson track and field is gone. Greece wants its money back that it gave to an Olympic champion for some reason. And college, the college X cross-country beer can is out. We can't wait to tell you all about it. Plus, at the end of the podcast, we have part two of our interview with author Matt Hart, whose new book has taken a great look inside Nike and the Alberto Salazar scandal. Um, in part two, Hart reveals to the Let's Run audience that Jerry Schumacher was a source to his book. And also, we talk to Matt about the alleged attempted kiss of Kara Goucher by Coach Salazar on a flight to Daegu. This is LetsRun.com co-founder Robert Johnson. Welcome you to our weekly show where we talk about the world of track and field and distance running. Joined as always by a staff writer, Jonathan Galt, as well as my genetic equal, but much faster twin brother, Weldon Johnson. How's everybody doing? Pretty good, Robert. I mean, the election, I don't think we really want to go into it, but let's just say it went my way. And the Patriots have pulled out a win on Monday Night Football, 30-27 at the buzzer over the previously winless and still winless New York Jets. So uh, things are looking up. John, I think Middle of America would like to know some of your views of what you just said about them offline, if you'd care to give your views on Middle of America. John, everyone, John's broadcasting from the East Coast elite right now, Boston, Harvard, Cambridge, Massachusetts. Well, close enough, right, John? Brookline, actually. Uh, but... Yeah, like I said, people tune in to listen to me talk about running or call you guys out for, you know, fake news or spelling mistakes, that sort of stuff. So let's just stick to that and not go into politics. John, being a member of the media, right? We This election is over because the media decides the elections are over, right? Yeah, has Let's Run actually, I don't think Let's Run's officially called the election though, Robert. When do you guys make the say on whether you're projecting the presidency or not? Well, you're, you're our decision desk, so can we officially call it? I think that's what everyone's waiting for. Maybe that's what Trump's waiting for. All the media has called it against him. Are they? Is he just waiting for Let'sRun.com to make its decision? Well, I'd like to call it. I, I don't have the information to make those decisions, I'm afraid. So, uh, Yeah, it's, who knows? People need confidence in the voting system, but widespread voting fraud, I think, is very hard. I've, I stand convinced by that, but... John, I, I got to tell a story. I went to dinner with someone Saturday night. You guys are trying not to talk politics, but you're about to start politics, and you're about to anger a significant portion of our audience, no matter which way they roll. So maybe we should do it. Maybe we should wait to the end of the show. We can give it to our subscribers only. Then those are the people that like us. 
I can't believe Robert Johnson is being the voice of reason and telling us to stick to running here. I never thought I'd see the day, but I'm happy to do it. I'd love to talk about running. Jordan, say maybe start with that. But no, let's let's let's, let's talk about this. I can't believe that everyone fell for that article I put up on Let's Run about who did Let's Run vote for, and I I put on there that 70% of Let's Run voted for Biden and 20% voted for Trump and 10% was other people. Everyone believes it. I just made those numbers up because I know that the advertising world is so woke. woke the cultural the cultural elite and 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 the media and, and the brands all want to see a wokeness. So I just made that up so that people would advertise on Let's Run. So folks, we're officially woke. We have that up. Please advertise on Let's Run. Email Weldon at Let's Run.com to get your ads in. You're lying, right? You're making that up, right? That was real. It was a real poll. Um, I, I will say one thing about the election because I meant to say this last week. You know, when I, I just – this kind of reminds me – This is I can't believe I didn't say it on the show last week. But this reminds me a little bit of the whereabouts violations thing. Like people just – the process should be the same for all states and it should be the same – and everyone should know what the process is. It's like Christian Coleman. You should test the same. You should either call every time or you don't call. You don't call some of the times and whatever. And every athlete, once the testing procedure begins, it should be the same. The same thing should be the states. You do your mail-in ballots or whatever – I think those should be counted up first. They should be announced early on election day. And then you go from there because people just don't be aren't used to paying attention to this. They're like, is this normal? Oh, it's not normal. This state does it this way. This state does it that way. It just confuses people and creates doubt in the system, which isn't good for democracy. I agree so. with you, Robert. And it turns out there actually was one of the parties did want votes to be counted early and before election day. And one of the other parties didn't want that to happen. And that may be, may have contributed to the situation we currently find ourselves in. 844-LET'S-RUN. Give us your call. Hit option seven. Jonathan Gold sounds off on the election. Actually, so I will save my story for subscribers. John, I went to dinner with a guy. I thought you were saving it for subscribers. You're about to tell the story. I, am. I got a hint at it. I got a hint at this story so people will subscribe. I bet this guy, he would have bet me, uh, I, it's probably the one of the most wealthiest guy I'm friends with. And I live in the outskirts of new york city until you move up here from texas these wall street guys man holy crap uh, you know i won the econ award at yale and i'm covering running maybe i should have taken the detour for a couple years but i'm enjoying life right anyway john this guy's convinced the election is not over and i bet him a significant amount of money that it is so that story is for subscribers only at the end of the podcast all right let's talk about running stuff uh, Jordan Issey, I think we should start there because this is a woman, she's the second fastest American female marathoner in history. We have not seen her since the trials. It has not been the smoothest last two years plus for Jordan Issey. You know, she was third in Boston in 2019, but apart from that, DNF Chicago didn't run well at the trials. She basically wasn't healthy, had to rush back to fitness. And now it's announced a few weeks ago she is running the Valencia Marathon on December 6th. It's a stacked field. It's a fast course. Kind of looks like something will be set up for her to run really well if she's in shape. The problem is she just ran this half marathon in Oregon. So it's the same course that Galen Rupp used for his and Sarah Hall used for hers a, a few weeks ago. And this was on Monday. She only ran 74.27, which, you know, if you can do math, that's just under 229 marathon pace. Her PR is 220. 
she was kind of saying afterwards it was cold and she didn't seem dressed for it at all. It was like 45 degrees that she was wearing like a crop top and bikini bottoms. And I don't know. I, I guess I'm just worried. Valencia is in three weeks from now, I believe, uh, four, maybe a little under four weeks. And she's trying to run low two twenties, I would guess. And she just ran 74, 27 for a half. What do you guys take away from this? Well, there's a lengthy, let's run like a message board discussion about this race. And I've been posting on there because some people were saying, you know, it's not that it was a fun, decent performance or whatatever. No way. I mean, this was a disaster. This is 74, 27. I mean, she, before the race, Sarah Butler uh, was tweeting out that Hase was going for 69 minutes. So I guess the good news is, you know, she's being coached by Paula Radcliffe. I assume Paula would not have her do this race unless she thought she was fit. But to run 74 minutes is terrible. I mean, it is absolutely terrible. And there's nothing good about it. She ran 237 in Atlanta. So I want to see a, a good result from her in Valencia, you know, and this is not encouraging in any stretch of the imagination. Now, you know, are we going to believe this excuse of, oh, I was cold? I personally used to hate to work, work out in cold weather, but racing in mid-40-degree weather isn't that cold, but... When I used to try to do track workout in that type of weather, I did not do well unless I wore tights. I guess she could have worn tights if she wanted to, but uh, I don't know. I mean, if she was overly cold, that actually could make me concerned that maybe her body fat percentage is too low, and that's not healthy in the long term. So there's a lot of speculation here. I will rule. I will give you my final verdict after Valencia. <laughs> oh, okay. I just think she's a California girl. She's been trained. I know she went to Oregon for four years, but. She's been training in California. That's where she's based. She goes up and it's 43 degrees and she's not ready for it. I mean, I do tend to believe her there. And she says, you know, usually when she told Sarah Butler after the race, usually when I have a rust buster half, my training starts to pick up. I still have a month to go to the marathon. I feel like I could have gone the marathon distance at the same pace, essentially is what she's saying. So that was good. I just don't have the half marathon turnover now. I was hoping it would be there. So look, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to totally write her off in Valencia, but my my expectations have been significantly downgraded from you know thinking oh could she get close to a PR or something to now like you well, know yeah. two twenty five or even around there. I mean, you can run the whole thing at, at that pace, but that's not good. That's two twenty nine yeah. pace. I yeah. mean, you know, and, and the the reality is, you know, when she was running well. How fast was she running in the half marathon before her major races? 2017, she ran 223 flat for third in Boston. What did she run in her halves? She ran 68.40 and 67.55. So way faster. 2017, she ran 220. This was the big year. She ran 220.57 in Chicago. What did she run in her in her half there? Wasn't great. She actually only ran 70.42. I think it was pretty hot and humid there. So she almost did run her Actually, she ran faster for the whole marathon than she did in her half in Philly. And that was only a few weeks before the race. So that is actually somewhat encouraging, you know. But again, we're not, I, if Jordan say goes out and runs 227 the marathon, it's not doing anything for me. I want to see on a flat course like Valencia something significantly under 225 or I'm not getting excited. Um, but, and, and then if, if, if you go down in recent years, this is the troubling trend 2019, her best half marathon. 7106. She runs 225 in Boston. Then she runs last fall 7235 in Philly before DNF Chicago. And then now she's run 7427. So she's getting slower every time she runs the half. 
And I guess every time she runs the full. Well, I'm glad Robert's going to wait till after Valencia to tell us whether <laughs> his judgment. But yeah, it's just, I mean, there's no way to make this a good run. She's 20 seconds a mile off of where she wanted to be. So 25, really? And yeah, maybe she never got, yeah, 20 seconds. She's 20 seconds off from 70 minute pace, which in today's world is really not that good world class for a woman. I'm sorry, 70 minutes for ab marathon, new shoes and everything. 220 marathon. It's great for an American in absolute time. What that would be number two all time, but it's, I mean, the 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 game is moving, advancing, and we're about to get left behind. I feel like that's my big concern for Americans, men and women's marathoning right now, because it, it's shifting once again. The shoes are shifting the times two to three minutes of what's a good time, and two twenty five. It's, it's not even in the ballpark anymore. That's going to be like the old 230. Well, well, a couple things here. One, like, two twenty. I think it's, it is a little unrealistic to expect a PR every time out. I mean, granted, with the shoes on a fast course, if she was super fit, I would kind of expect her to PR, but we know she's had some issues with consistency of training and being healthy the last couple of years. But, well, then, you're worried Americans are going to get behind. The most recent major marathon, Sarah Hall, who wasn't even good enough to make the U.S. Olympic team, just got second. Do you... Do you not view that as evidence against your point? John, we're in an era where facts don't really matter. So I'm still worried. You're really confident that American marathoning said Sarah Hall is one of the top two, five marathoners in the world. I feel like that was more of a fluke result. Well, I don't think it was a fluke result because I think she could run fast. I think she could run 219. That performance is worth 219 in good conditions. But I do agree with your larger point where if you put – all the best American marathoners and all the best marathoners in the world on a fast day, on a fast course, like London Marathon, Berlin, something like that, or even Chicago, you know, I think the winner would be probably around 216. And I don't think there would be an American, you know, Bridget Cosgar, if she's fully fit, maybe 215, 214. I don't think there would be an American close to that. But she is also the world record holder, you know, and the fastest woman ever. But even among the second tier, like, is an American going to run 217 anytime soon, which multiple women from other countries have done recently? No, I don't think so. Right. And some of the beauty of the marathon is the unpredictability. You don't line them up. The track races, you line them up. The race really goes much more to form according to PRs or seasonal best or something like that. The marathon doesn't go that way. And yeah, you're right. We should not discount Sarah Hall's run. It was amazing. She beat the world champion. She kicked her down. I mean, she beat these people. So that's some of the beauty of it. To me, one of the beauties of the marathon is something that's missed by, I guess, most people, even the pundits, even the press, people like ourselves. Yes, anything can happen in a marathon. But the real beauty of the marathon is that there's, what, six majors a year, maybe going to be seven. So... If you're the 20th best marathoner in the world, you're relevant because they've got to have six winners. And then in each race, anything can happen. So at least five people are going into a marathon are somewhat relevant. Six times five is 30. (laughs) If you're the 30th best 1500 meter runner, you're not relevant because there's only going to be one winner and they're all showing up in the same race on the same day. So the marathon, just the nature of it, you can't do that many. It's, you know, unless you're a, a, a Paralympian and doing the wheelchair marathon, <laughs> which, you know, the same guy can win London and New York and back-to-back weekends. And when you go to next fall, 
when all the majors are together, it's going to be even more diluted. It's going to be unbelievable. Speaking of which, this is a call to action. If you are a race director, a timing expert, please email me, robert at letsrun.com. We need to put on a race. We must put on a massive major mass partition, mass participation marathon this spring. I will spend big money to invest in this. I think we can do it. The vaccine is out, is coming out soon. We need to have a major marathon with 20,000 people in it. There's pent up demand. Everything has been promoted, has been postponed to the fall. I just saw that Rotterdam is postponed to the fall. Boston is postponed to the fall. I don't think we talked about that in last week's show. This is absurd. There's going to be no spring marathons. There's a major opportunity. We probably have it. I don't know where we're going to have it. Where's good weather? Put it in the heartland somewhere. And let's do this. I'm serious. Robert, let's run. We can, we, let's do this. All right. Well, then, are the chances, like, if I offer you 1 to 100, 100 to 1 odds that this thing actually happens, that Robert is able to successfully stage a major marathon, What do you think that's too high or too low? Is that about right or what? Is it for a major money? I, the guy's cheap. There's no way he puts up major money. No, to make money. you got to spend money. You're gonna, you're yeah. gonna, I have to pay somebody to start promoting this race, so I pay them. There's like- going to I hope there are spring marathons. The Wall Street Journal, I need to write an editorial on this, said, you know, there's no mass events. The Moscow Marathon took place. I keep reiterating this. I'm going to write an article on this. It had around 10,000 finishers. This was in the height of COVID, the summer. I saw the NFL said there's been no proof of COVID spreading from during a sporting event so far in the world. Now, that doesn't mean it never can happen. So I'm hoping for spring marathons, outdoor sports, Let's carry on. I mean, people could argue it's all the travel around it that's going to have stuff, but especially with a vaccine, if I want to live my life, why can't I? Yeah, John, give me a hard time. I guess it's probably about as likely as me coming out with my children's book that I promised people by the end of the year not looking so good. Folks, I have great ideas. I need someone just to hold I, – I need like underlings to actually implement my ideas. Any VC people want to fund me, the Robert Johnson Fund? It would be fantastic. Speaking of which, John, which is more likely? On last week's podcast, you asked – which was more likely, Alberto Salazar listening to this show or something else? And I was re-listening to the podcast. My, when I re-listened to it last week, I definitely thought, well, of course Alberto's listening to the podcast. I believe that. So some things are are, are likely, some aren't. Well, I don't think Alberto's listening to our podcast. Oh, one other thing I will say about Jose before we totally leave this topic behind. The one encouraging sign to me is that she actually made it through the whole race. And okay, the pace isn't what she wanted, but... How many races do you think she's run in the last year, guys? Because before this race, it was one. It was the Olympic marathon trials, and that was the only one she'd run since September of 2019. So to me, the fact that she actually got on the line and now she's going to go run Valencia, it at least seems like she's been training and she's been building fitness. You know, Obviously, the result's not good, but to me, it's just it's good to see her healthy and racing again because injuries has been a big problem for her and we know how talented she is. So that's the one positive I would take out from it. But I think overall, it's got to be pretty disappointing if you're a Jordan Hesse fan. Is Valencia elite only? Is that what the race is going to be? I assume so, right? Because COVID's ramping up in Europe. That's one thing that sort of bugs me when people talk about COVID. There's never any sense of perspective of country by country. And it seems like there's a huge regional component, but Oh, back to Sarah Hall, guys. Maybe it was her fueling that helped her. A little sponsor's plug. If you want to fuel like Sarah or learn about her fueling, go to youcan.co. You can save 20% off your order with code Let's Run. Ucan is based on the simple starch and 
super starch, excuse me, but it's a, it's a more steady rate of carbohydrate fueling, no spike. And then bonking afterwards, they now have pre-race meals, post-race recovery stuff. Check it out. You There'll be a link directly to Sarah Hall's training in the show notes. Well, then I want to ask you about your mental health today. You were supposed to go to a cross country race report on a cross country race for the first time. And I don't know how long, how are you holding up? America's race has been canceled. I've, I wanted to lead with this. I was like, can I just ramp up on this? And then I'm like, wait, it's not actually my biggest concern, but it was the first thing I was just going to rail about. And then we can also get to this later, but my college cross country coach died yesterday. Coach Bartold, I love the guy. So we can talk about him in a minute, but so ranting about <laughs> a race getting canceled because of COVID really isn't my number one concern. I'm upset about it. Like I was looking forward to this. I have not been to a legit meet to cover since man, what Olympic trials since February. So I was going to go to America's race. It was going to be very cool. It was the three military academies on the West point on what's it called? The plane, the, you know, hallowed military parade grounds. And they haven't had a sporting event on there in I think over 50 years. And then I hear it's canceled because of COVID, not because somebody has COVID either. No one on the either team has COVID, but the there has been an outbreak at Air Force Academy, so people are just being cautious. I mean, like, 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 oh my gosh, don't get me started. And these are the military academies. Like, you think if anyone would, you know, carry on with the mission, right? Isn't it supposed to be the military academies? Or am I just now venting? You guys are staring at me kind of. I mean, I, I think, well, you're just venting at some level. I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I thought this was an amazing event. We had Mike Smith on the show last week to promote it. I mean, here's a college coach who's actually worried about presenting the sport to the public, which no one does. And we were going to have a meet where there was a winner and there was a loser, actually first, second, and third. Everybody would know how that worked. The entire meet was going to be visible to the fans from start to finish. They weren't going to run off into the woods. No one has no idea what goes on. And then you see the finish. You were going to see the action take place. And it was also going to be on a national broadcast on ESPN Plus, and and now it's not happening. But hey, being cautious about COVID, I, I think is a good thing in the long term. And in some level, I actually thought about this. I was going back and forth, Weldon, but I was like, I kind, I, I don't know. I think these people at the military academies are kind of learning something that a lot of the rest of society, young people, don't learn. Like people in authority decide something, and then you sort of follow it. And I, I guess maybe you shouldn't, sometimes people say you shouldn't follow it, but th you know, th th of course they're going to be super cautious. They don't do tons of massive testing at these academies. They don't want to have an outbreak on the academies. They're back in full school. So it is what it is. You know, I think if this was obviously like the NFL, they would try to make it work, but it's a college cross country race. So they don't want to take any chances. Disappointing, but I am hoping that in the future we will get to see this event at some place, you know, since they organized it and had it all planned and everything. I'm not too optimistic about that, Robert, because talking to them, the the coaches at all the institutions, they're basically like, look, the only reason we're doing this is because, you know, we now have the time on the schedule because there's no NCAA championships. There's no regional, like, could they do it for a track meet or something this academic year? It's possible. But once the schedule goes back to normal, they were like, part of the reason they were so excited is because, they air force is out in colorado they don't usually come and race these other schools there's not really room on the calendar for them to do it so that was one of the bummers about this event being canceled is 
they may not get a chance to race each other again, all three of them. Yeah, well, it seems weird to me that they can't just replace the Army-Navy meet with the Army-Navy-Air Force meet, but they act like that would be blasphemy. But couldn't you just score the meets as, as well, two separate dual meets? But what that's I would like, like Harvard-Yale and then inviting like some other... Oh, I guess Princeton comes to the Harvard-Yale meet, but I don't know. But I think at a minimum what they should do is have the Army-Navy meet on the plane. Just one time. I actually think they should do it like... You know, it's been 98 years since the sporting event, Weldon, has last been on the plane. Why don't they wait to the 100th year do it that year? Well, do you want me to drive up there and stop them? Because they said they were going to have an intra-squad meet today on the plane. I guess I could have just gone up there and covered that. But Yes, you need to stop it. I'm going to just for, go onto a military establishment and just barge <laughs> in. Sorry, here, I'm here to In stop. the interest of, let's, uh, of the sport of running. No, actually, I do think, Robert, I think that's a great idea, though, because – Army Navy, they take that seriously in every sport. They're all they're that's all they care about in the sports. At Army and Navy is you know the Army Navy match and having it on the plane, which is right in front of the barracks and you know the center of campus. I think you'd actually get a pretty good turnout of Army fans just wanting to go and the cadets wanting to see them race against Navy. So I, I think that's a brilliant idea in a normal year. You know when you get. You're actually allowed full spectators. So they were going to encourage cadets to go to this thing, even with the COVID restrictions. Yes. And don't tell Robert he has brilliant ideas because it'll get to his head. But this is proof of the let's run.com jinx because we've been promoting this thing on, we had Mike Smith on our podcast and John, much to your chagrin, you wrote a nice preview of the whole thing, posted it only to have Chris Nickerson of runner space tweet out uh meets canceled yeah this is so this is how it happened is i spent like last week interviewing all the coaches and the article was done like last thursday or friday and i texted robert i'm like hey it's done we can publish it now we can just wait till you know next week when it's close to the race so robert just waited to publish on monday which is fine and i'm like all right here it is it's all done i didn't figure i didn't I'm, i'm sorry if i was supposed to but i didn't call up all the coaches to confirm the meet that they had talked to me about two days ago was still going to take place. But it turns out during that time, uh, both Air Force and Navy had canceled football games because of outbreaks on their campus. And then it turns out that also meant they couldn't travel to West Point for the Army-Navy Air Force meet. And by, you know, we published it and Chris Nickinson somehow had the scoop before I did. So thanks, Chris, for pointing it out. But sorry, no one got to, you know, read the full preview. But that was one of the reasons why the cancellation didn't bother me. They'd already canceled these football games. Remember when in the spring when I went off when the Ivy League basketball, men's basketball, and women's basketball tournaments were canceled? Because I said, this makes no sense. You're going to cancel the Ivy League basketball tournaments, then let them go to the NCAA tournaments, and then let them have spring sports. And then within days, they said, no, we're not doing any of that. So as long as you're being sort of intellectually consistent, I'm okay with it. But while we're talking about college track and field and cross-country programs, we have some – that was – disappointing news. We have some good news to report and some also some disappointing news to report on the good news front. William and Mary has done a complete about face. So a few months ago, they announced they were going to cut men's track and field as well as some other sports like swimming and whatnot. Since then, the athletic director who announced these cuts has been fired. And now William and Mary says they're bringing back all the sports. So I don't really quite understand this. Was this just John, like an elaborate scheme for them to, raise a bunch of money, like swimming raised a million dollars within a few hours to get money in the coffers, or did they just decide they were way off base on this? I mean, they kind of had a Texas A&M former assistant AD running, and William Mary doesn't seem to be making sense. But 
what is the president's role, William Mary? Like, does she get any blame for this, for letting AD make these changes and then doing a complete about phase? Or should we praise her for changing her mind? I think you got to give them criticism and praise. I mean, the AD, they, they obviously, she allowed this, the cuts to happen, but sorry, they, the AD, I think, gets criticism uh, for sure. Most people, you know, if there's a loser in this situation, I think it's her. But the president, I think, gets, you know, you get blamed for allowing it to happen, but then she saw the public outcry and there were a lot of people who were upset about this. So, I, I you know, I think they also get credit for um, turning this thing, for allowing them to reinstate the programs. But I think the biggest credit needs to go to, like, the alumni and these fundraising groups that immediately like save save tribe track save tribe swimming that start raising awareness raising a ton of money like the swimming group raised like three million dollars over three million dollars since september and pledges this is according to the virginian pilot who broke the news about the programs being restored the track and field team which is pretty crazy they've built a an endowment of more than seven million i think that's over the past few years but then also he said their alums threatened to give back alumni medallions and diplomas and withdraw from the school's athletic hall of fame. And that $16 million that track alumni have pledged in their estates will be canceled if men's track was not reinstated. And then you have the women's track team. I think it was 26 members of the team. They wrote this letter saying they were not going to represent the school until the men's team was reinstated. So I really do think, uh, they, the women's track team and the alumni base deserve a ton of credit here for getting things moving and, and creating this change. But let's go to some shocking news in the other direction, and this is coming from Clemson. I mean, Clemson, for our non-American visitors, is a huge school in the South. They have one of the top football programs in the world at the college level, and they're in the ACC conference. This is a big power five school with tons of money. They announced this week that they are canceling men's track and field and cross country. And the AD says they're going to be saving about $2 million a year, which seems kind of high actually for a track program. But Clemson does pretty well at NCAAs most years. I think, you know, in terms of track, they've got some talented sprinters and whatnot. And the AD has already sort of preemptively said like, hey, you can try to raise money, but this is a final decision. We're going to reallocate that money elsewhere. And also, um, this would give us long-term Title IX viability is what he is saying. But this to me is shocking because A, it's Power Five, and B, I guess unless they're really worried about a Title IX lawsuit, but in recent years, to be honest, come on, we haven't seen very many Title IX lawsuits. Um, you know, I think the proportionality test doesn't really make sense anymore because they're saying that the proportion of the student body – has to be reflected in the proportion of athletes, but no one says that the proportion of the student body, which is now skewing female, has to match that of, of the U.S. population. So a school can be 60% female now. No one says, oh, that's discriminatory against men, but the sports teams have to be 60% female. So there's some, this proportionality test needs to go at some level. But what I'm just thinking about it from a pragmatic standpoint, guys, you would think Clemson, there might be some super fast football player that wants to go do you know, be a wide receiver on the football team and also sprint in the spring. And you think that just once every five or 10 years, that one recruit doing that would be worth them spending a couple million dollars a year. Honestly, I'm surprised Dabo Sweeney doesn't care that these football coaches now are such egomaniacs. They don't want people doing track, I guess. I don't know. I'm just shocked that a football program would do this because you think you would every once in a while, there'd be a dual sport athlete that would want to do both, you know, like a Jeff Demps or somebody like that. Jacoby Ford was the 2009 NCAA champion in the 60 meter dash. And he was also 
uh, drafted into the NFL in 2010. He played for the Clemson football team as a return specialist. Um, so that's one of you, that's your example right there. But who else is shocked by this? Yeah, I was shocked by this. I didn't see it coming. I mean, when's the last time a Power 5 school cut track and field, men's track and field? Well, Minnesota did it a month ago, and they, they did cut indoor track. Oh, well, good good point, John. But, oh, well, so maybe that shows what's coming. Like, these schools were hit by COVID. The financial impact was huge to these athletic departments. And I guess th- there's two ways to think about it. Did they just start cutting – some of the 80s, and especially the 80s, maybe the big schools, they really focus on revenue sports versus non-revenue sports. So they're like, we'll just get rid of these non-revenue sports. Where schools and other maybe non-revenue schools might think, oh, all sports are important. We need to keep them. But William Mary showed that wasn't the case. So I think track and field, we need to be on this as a collective community because I think we want collegiate track and field programs. Yeah, I think I think the best argument for track and field is it, it's the cheapest way on a per capita per student basis for a lot of people to enjoy college sports. You can you can have you know fifty people on a track team for a couple million dollars versus having you know ten people, fifteen twenty people on, on a soccer team or something like that. So um, that's what we should be working on promoting to try to save the sport. Um, also, it's a diverse sport, which helps us. Um, you know so. Well, I think the issue is here, like, look, Clemson is claiming they're crying poverty, basically. They're saying there's a projected resource shortfall of $25 million. This is from the athletic director, Dan Radakovich. That's in his letter to the community, basically. And he said the annual $2 million plus in savings, you know, by cutting the men's track programs and cross country, that will allow them to, you know, put a dent into that. But this is also a school that just spent $50 million plus on this massive football facility. It signed Debo Swinney, the football coach, to a 10-year, $93 million extension. And I think the the question you get here is like, what is the role of track and field and of non-revenue sports in general at the NCAA system? Because I think there are some schools, maybe a football power like Clemson might just say, the NCAA requires them to, I think, to have 16 sports in, in order to be a member of the NCAA. Maybe it's 14. I'm not sure about the exact number. And some of those schools, I think, probably just view them, okay, we're going to get by with the exact minimum, and these schools, we just have them to check a box. Whereas there are other schools that think, no, this is actually a valuable part of getting kids into our institution, and yes, we're going to make a loss on it. Because I think if you look at I don't know, if you just look at the numbers, like is it football's job? Like football is probably that and maybe men's basketball, the only programs at Clemson that are bringing in revenue. And is it football's job to prop up uh, the other teams that don't bring in money. I don't know. I do, I do think that's a fair debate to have. I would like to have track and field programs, but like track and field program is probably not going to be bringing in $2 million of revenue. Correct. And if you look at, te- at, at Clemson, I mean, they're, they're pretty much at the bare minimum and they're doing eight men's teams and I think nine women's teams. But what's disappointing to me is they clearly don't value, see the educational component of having sports at the division one level. And that was one of the things, and I don't know if it really came across in our Mike Smith interview last week, but when I talked to him offline about this is, you know, one of the things he said to me was, look at army, they view sports as an integral part of every cadets experience, whether they're a division one athlete or not. He's like, I knew when they'd say canceled, that didn't matter. We were going to have an army Navy meet 
privately ourselves. We're still planning on having that, you know, indoors, etc. And they view this as like the best way to prepare them to prepare, prepare someone for thinking on, the, you know, for reacting under pressure, for making plans on the ply. It's the closest thing you can do to recreate battle, to be honest, which obviously isn't a concern for the average Clemson student. But as Lily, Clemson is a very, you know, and I hate playing the race car, but Clemson is a predominant, very much, uh, it's not the most diverse of schools, let's put it that way. So I'm surprised that they would be canceling one of the more diverse sports. So I wonder, you know, can the race car be played, you know, at this sort of Southern school to see if anything could happen on that front. Um, but yeah, these, it's clear that, you know, I mean, I don't know. People don't view these, don't care about these sports except for the major sports. And John, I'll, I'll put this on you. Do you care that the Dartmouth, what was it? Squash and golf teams are being canceled. I don't think we canceled squash. Did we, we did cancel golf, but no. And that's fair observation. And Robert, not really. I mean, I was a Dartmouth varsity athlete and I would prefer them to have the teams, but I, is it going to crush me that we don't have a golf team anymore? Was I following our golf results? No, I care about the team I was on track and field cross country. If they, we lost that, that would be crippling. But these are like the swimming team also got cut. Am I really, do I really care that much about losing Dartmouth swimming? I mean, I, I I prefer we not, but it's it's not like I'm I'm going to be losing sleep over it, which is kind of unfortunate. But I think that's the way a lot of alums feel. Unless you were part of that sport, you're not going to be crying about it. So how far do we go on that, though? I mean, do you care about Dartmouth football? What maybe we just cancel all sport, all sports at Dartmouth? Let me step in here. You guys are bringing up some good points, but one, there's Title Nine, and for I think. Everyone, especially our foreign visitors, let's remind people of what Title IX is. Title IX was a law designed to stop discrimination based on sex in higher education in the United States. The following is original text of Title IX assigned into law. No person in the United States shall, based on sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. I would argue that if you cut men's track and don't cut women's track, that is discrimination under Title IX. Well, how about a lawsuit fighting back that way? Now, what the I think one problem school is, did try to do this. I try, what was this, there was a school that cut men's track a few years ago, and they actually did try to. I forget who it was, but schools tried to do that. Well, you, you make a great point when you read that; it's very clear. And to me, look. Football should be just counted separately. The reality is, and I don't know why, I've never seen this. I've never even seen a woke person arguing for this. There seems to be no impetus for people to start women's football programs. There's no, I, I've never seen a woman say, I want to play football. Um, so <laughs> count, you know, I guess we could say that the football team, how about we have that be a co-ed sex? Men and women, you can play football on this one team. And then football is separate. And then everything else is treated the same under Title IX. So if you want to have, you know, Soccer yeah. teams, you have two. If you have track, you want to have two. Yeah, there's this administrative state, and the athletic director hints at it, but they've said, and this I don't think this is written in law anywhere, but the courts have shown one way you can comply with Title IX is have the ratio of athletes at your school match the ratio of the student body. Quotas are bad, people. Let's look at the original intent of this law. It's clear you're not supposed to discriminate on sex, and now they're discriminating on sex. 
And you could easily argue from a revenue standpoint, football is a revenue generating sport. There is not women's football, as you said, Robert. So if we exclude football from the numbers, I'm sure already that there are more athletic opportunities at Clemson for women athletes and men excluding football. So my argument is you could say that there's no discrimination now because of Title IX at Clemson. Or you could even, you want to take the quota thing further, you could go the other direction. There's more women at Clemson than men. I assume almost every school is like that. Is that discriminatory? No, it's just how it is. So I think it's okay. Most people get women don't play football. So let's take football out of the equation. And then there's no problem with Title IX at Clemson, in my opinion. Yeah, one of the interesting things to me just in general in this modern day and age is we have this, at the, at the same time, we have this incredible woke movement and popular culture. We also have a sort of a backlash, though, against quotas. I mean, one of the things that was fascinating to me is where is the wokest state in the union? You have to say it's California. What do they do in the election last week? They continue to outlaw affirmative action and university admissions policies. So pretty amazing to me. California is one of like, I don't know, 15 or 20 states where it's illegal to use affirmative action in a college admissions process. And the woke people got this put on the ballot. Hey, let's overturn this. Of course, in this new day and age, everyone in California will overturn this. Well, they went to the polls and it it lost pretty resoundingly. So it is kind of interesting how sort of, I, I think maybe people are getting a little bit smarter about this and saying, Hey, having strict numbers doesn't make a lot of sense for some of this stuff. But I think most people are against discrimination and I would argue this is discriminatory against men. I mean, it's not a, it's not how it was presented in the past, but it's clear, especially at these revenue schools, what's happening. And I applaud the William and Mary women's team for standing up saying, look, this isn't right. This isn't fair. There's no men's team. We're not competing. So the burden shouldn't be on these Clemson women to save their men's program. But if they took a similar stance, I think it, it might have a lot of weight because the diversity of track and field is one of the most beautiful things about it. And then also it's one of the few sports where actually oftentimes a men's and women's competition goes on at the exact same time. So diversity uh, of the sexes, mixing of the sexes of the races, it's one of the beauties of track and field. Let's keep it going. Now, one thing, more positive college running news here. We teased it in the intro. I saw this tweet from Brett Lana yesterday, Japan Running News, and it just made me smile. He said, the surest sign yet that the Hakone Ekadem will go ahead. Sapporo has released its 2021 Hakone beer can. And he links to a tweet with a runner, and there's all these different colors. I'm guessing those are school names uh, next to it. And it's a runner wearing the sash or the Takumi, Tasumi. I'm tr- I need to look up what that thing's called. Uh. Anyways, it's cool. In Japan, the biggest sporting event of the year is this collegiate Ekaden. And they apparently have beer company since it's everyone's. I mean, you know, they have beers probably for the Super Bowl. Well, there they have one for the Hakone Ekaden. So, yeah. Really Sapporo. Cool. This, I mean, Sapporo is like a major beer company in Japan. That would be like Budweiser or someone. Well, considering like 60% beer. of people watch this race in Japan, it's, that's even more amazing to me. I just think it's great. Like, could you imagine a, like Budweiser or someone comes out with a NCAA cross-country beer can with all the names of the schools and a runner? And I just think it would be fantastic. I, I'm calling now. Anyone who runs a brewery or knows someone who runs a brewery, NCAA cross country can let's get make it happen for 2021. I thought John, when you were going to talk about the positive college news, you were going to talk about this, and I can't believe we didn't bring this up when we we're talking about Jordan Hussein. 
A 17-year-old college freshman, this young woman should actually be in high school, but she decided during COVID-19 just to graduate early and, and, and go to college. Tierney Wolfgram has run a U.S. junior marathon personal best of 231.50 last week. U.S. US junior record, Robert. It is also a personal best. The U.S. junior record. Yeah, 231.49, and it broke the previous record, which was held by Kathy Shiro O'Brien, former Foot Locker champion and two-time Olympian, and she had ran 234.32 in 1984. This is a great performance. I mean, once she took her PB down from 240 and change, I think, to 231 in one race, and she's 17 years old. I mean, how many women, I guess now with the super shoes, are breaking 230 every year in the U.S.? Not that many, yeah. I mean, it, it's phenomenal. I mean, just, this, you know, it, it's amazing. And she goes where, John? University of Nevada at Reno? Yeah. So I, I read a fascinating article how she ended up there. I think, like, her high school coach was coached by the Nevada coach. or No, the high school coach, assistant high school coaches, like, mom was coached by the Nevada coach or something like that. Anyways, um, this was a young woman who'd been – training on her own for marathons in high school. Um, she was like Minnesota state champion as a freshman has had a couple of stress fractures and whatnot, broken tibia claimed that she was not being heavily recruited at all because she was doing this marathon training, which I find a little bit hard to believe. I still think everybody would want someone this talented on their team. And then the Nevada Reno coach says, Hey, you want to start now? And she goes to college Nothing's going on. So she really said she wasn't going to go back to the marathon until after college. And she runs a 231. Like, that's insane. Like, do you guys realize how good that is? Like, I mean, that's like a 15, 35,000. Well, that's before the new shoes. So let me look up JK's conversion chart here. How much are we going to give the shoes? Five minutes? Well, on his chart, a 237 marathon would still be a 215.47. So I think she's got a 15.47, you mean? Yeah, two thirty-seven. I'm adding even six minutes to her time, so if she's in sub sixteen minutes shape. I mean, I think this woman is going to be a big player on the NCAA level if she stays healthy. Well, I mean, you're assuming she's as good a five k runner as she is in the marathon. I don't think that's always true. Well, I know, but okay. I, I think she's clear. I think she's she's definitely one to watch in the marathon moving forward. But I think yes or no? Would you expect this young lady to be an all American in cross country and? March, I would say yes, without a doubt. I would say yes as well. I would. Well, that's assuming well, she, I mean, yeah. she gets to. Are the, the odds greater than fifty percent? Yes or no? I'm saying I'm going over on that. So I, I just think this is amazing, and you know, maybe instead of running the half marathon in Oregon, Jordan Hussey should have just gone to, to gone to wherever this race was held and, and rabbited the race because they're almost running the same pace. Yeah, it's kind of crazy when you put it that way. This is in Sacramento, which was she just had a couple uh, male pacemakers here. But there's a good article on Fast Women had uh, all the scoop about this. But I found it interesting. Like, you know, this is she ran Tini Wolfgram. She ran her first marathon at age 15, uh, and she ran 240 in that race, which is pretty crazy. And going into that, they basically said she didn't know what she was doing. She, you know, her parents helped her out, but they didn't really know that much. And I found this quote was really interesting. She said, we didn't know how much stress we were putting on me. We thought that if I could actually do it, then what harm could it be doing to me? I ended up getting injured for a whole year after that. So it's kind of interesting because there's a lot of criticism when you see these 
people, young men or young women running the marathon really early, like, oh, this is so much stress on their body. And, you know, she had run 120 miles leading up to that race and they thought, oh, okay, she's going to be okay. And then she kind of realized, oh, maybe not. Maybe I shouldn't have done that. So she said she wasn't going to do another marathon until she was 22. But then with COVID and no cross-country races this fall, she asked a college coach, could she do it? They decided, yes, they would go for it. And now she says she's not going to do another one, I think, for several years until she's out of college. But she did run the Olympic marathon trials as well. Um, and, you know, congrats to her for qualifying for that. She was 76th in that race in 242. Yeah, John, I mean, it, it's kind of an interesting debate. You know, like, does training for the marathon at a young age hurt you? I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of people say, oh, look at these, you know, Lana Hadley, she didn't do anything. And then they use that as an example. The example I would say is look at Kathy Shiro O'Brien. I mean, the record she broke, this woman, one footlocker, made two Olympic teams. It didn't hurt her. And it sounds like they're going to actually reduce her mileage. I mean, she's been running 100-mile weeks. They're going to come down to the 70s, work on her speed in college a little bit. So I, I don't think that a one-off event of running a marathon is really going to hurt you. Now, you might, maybe you say you don't need to be doing 100-mile weeks at that age. But again, <laughs> to be honest, if you were going to ask me which burns you out more, I would say running hard track workouts without the proper base is more damaging for your body in the long term than running a lot of mileage, particularly at the threshold pace. So there's no way to really prove that because there's not enough people doing it to show one way or the other. But in our show notes, I'll link to an article from by Sarah Barker from women's running in May about how she, you know, graduated high school early, ended up at, at uh, Nevada Reno. All right, guys, I have some personal college news, some sad news, but Sports lost a legend in my book. My college coach, Steve Bartold, a.k.a. Daddy B, has passed on. I, don't know, I got a text last night from a guy I ran with in college, and he's like, have you heard the news? And right away I knew what that meant because he hasn't been in good health. We got we had a sort of reunion last year, a year ago, and I'm really glad I got to see him. But I live in Connecticut now, and actually, like, yesterday I was driving, and I thought of Coach Bartold, and then – to have my buddy Eric text me, it's like, oh, this sucks. But I don't know, guys. Like, I mean, John, you ran in college. Running in college, there's nothing better than it. I ended up getting fourth in the country, becoming much better as a runner after college. I mean, that's where my dreams really became reality as a runner. But for me, competing on a collegiate cross-country team, I mean, that's the ultimate. I, I don't know if other people who never were on that team won't agree with it but it's just such a cool period of life yeah it's absolutely awesome and a bunch of my college teammates are still my best friends today so so it's, I, I feel sorry for your loss well then also daddy b that's an epic nickname how did that come about like one of the other guys my year came up with it eric was trying to credit me for the name i'm like there's no way i came up with the name i think we might have been james maroney so anybody listening let me know but i mean the guy was like a he coached at st john's before yale and and coached um Peter Farrell to essentially, I think a world record in the 800 meters at St. John's indoor, indoor 800. And then came to Yale and we used to hear about all these great teams and, you know, coach B was like, I don't know if not from a different era, but like his voice, he was just one of those guys you would hear at the track meet. Like a guy texted me today I'm friends with who went to Bucknell and he's like, Oh, he reminds me of my coach. I would just hear this voice during the meet sort of yelling at you. And 
he was just compassionate. And, and for me, he gave me a chance. Like we're talking about this title nine stuff. I don't know if I'd be allowed to walk on the team at Yale anymore. I wasn't recruited and some schools limit men's opportunities. They're not allowed to walk in solely because they're a male. To me, that's discrimination. And, but it costs nothing to let a kid come out for the team. So he let me come out and my freshman year, we probably had the worst cross country team. One of the worst. I mean, it's not really true because the Ivy league, the worst team's pretty good, but we were the last team in the league. And I was hurt from first part of the season running JV. We were terrible at the HEPs. And on the bus back, I mean, dead last by like 80 points. And the way back on the bus, he was just chewing us out. You know, you guys are garbage. You know, this is the worst day of your life. You'll remember this. You know, you think you're having a bad day. Nuh-uh, you'll remember this one. And then he called out who would be running the regional meet. And he got, you know, five or six deep. And I'd been the first guy in the JV. And he, he mentioned me. And it was like, holy shit. Like, I'm going to be running varsity cross country uh, in college. Like, I mean, I'm tingling right now, actually thinking about that, like what that meant to me. And then in that meet, um, like a guy in front of me, like passed out on the team, fell down. So I ended up being top, top five. So the, the crazy thing, I was top five every meet after that until Hep's my senior year, John. That's a whole story in its own right. <laughs> Not a good performance. But um, just he believed in me and like gave me a chance and like was encouraging. And the other thing is like he never forgot we weren't winning a lot, but that was the goal to win. And you never forgot that with coach B. Let me interrupt here. First of all, it was Tom Farrell, not Peter Farrell. They're brothers, Weldon, but that's how he coached to Olympic 800s. But um, I was actually, I was actually, uh, I loved coach Bartol because he would let me come on the bus. Like he would let me ride on the bus with Weldon. And even though I was going to a different school. So I was on the bus when he, after y'all's freshman year, when y'all did so bad, and he had all the varsity runners go on the bus. I think he might have taken the JV guys off because y'all ran all right. And he just chewed y'all out. And then he chewed them out. And he, he gave them back, John, their bibs because he said, when you think you're having a bad day later on in life and your wife cheats on you or you're having trouble at work, I want you to realize, take a look at that singlet. I mean, take a look at this bib. You'll remember this is the worst day of your life. So <laughs> it's amazing. That's phenomenal. But I remember Weldon the race. Yes, Weldon got to run varsity. And I was at that race. It was at Lehigh, I think. And I was counting the guys because if you got top five in one of these races, you lettered. So I was like, oh, my God, my brother could be a letter in college. So I, I, one guy did pass out. And I'm like, you're number six. All you got to do is get one. So wait, you're just rooting against your own teammates. <laughs> yes. Well, I was, all I cared about, Weldon Weldon could have been fifth to last. But as long as he was in the top five for Yale, baby, he had that letter. So Bartold, we missed. And one thing, when I was coaching at Cornell, we one time, about once a year, we'd have like a guest lecturer come. And one of them was like this motivational speaker type person. But I think they were also talking about sort of your role as a coach. And he gave a speech called, they call you coach. And it talked about what an honor it was to be called coach. And it's true. Like whether you're great at X's and O's or bad at it or training or whatever, most of the athletes respect the coach if you if you if you treat them well and whatever and it's an amazing honor like what other person particularly track and field into cross country in college they saw me almost every day for four years like the teachers that doesn't happen you see them for 12 weeks then you have a new teacher and whatever so it's a great honor to be a coach and, and they give you attributes that you have and that's why when coaches violate that trust it makes it you know all, all, all the worse so um Coaches out there realize you have a special place in people's heart, whether you're super successful or not. Um, you're making an impact on people's lives. 
Yeah, I mean, it impacted all of our lives. I mean, think about college. I mean, John, you're 15 years younger than us, maybe more, actually more than that. But I can probably, without thinking about it, name one professor of mine from college. But like, you know, there's not a day gone by that I haven't forgotten, you know, Daddy B and his life lessons and that sort of stuff. And, you know, even though he like he taught us to win, like he there was a bigger perspective. It, we were, it was still a sport. But like when you're doing it, you want to do everything you can to win. But I remember one year, some kid, it was a triple jumper from like Bahamas. He skipped the heps. He was like, sorry, coach. It was a middle of exam period. He's like, I'm not doing the conference meet. And I was like, this is like, you know, mutiny. Like this guy should be put up for treason in my book. And I was kind of furious. And I was like venting a coach at practice. And he's like, "Uh uh-uh. I recruited this kid to come to Yale. And like the academic, you know, he's from a different country. He's like, this is the greatest, uh, such an opportunity for him. You know, I'd be a hypocrite to tell him that he can't skip the conference meet because he feels like exams are more important. You know, this is first and foremost an education institution. And I was like, well, D- Daddy B's like got a little more perspective than I do. So I don't know. I'm going to miss him. Really glad I got to see him last year. But thoughts and prayers with his family and everybody else. All right, folks, before we get to the second part of our Matt Hart interview from a couple weeks ago, a few other things I'd like to get out there. I've determined, guys and gals, that L.A. Kipchoge must do the New York City Marathon in 2021. Came out last week that his primary focus for 2021 is defending his Olympic crown. Hopefully Kenya's smart enough to put him on the team. With no major spring marathons, I don't see why they wouldn't. Hopefully they don't punish him for not running great in London. But he says he's not sure that he'll run the London Marathon because it's only like a few weeks after the Olympics, right? When is it? Two months. So the Olympic marathon would be August 8th, I believe. And London is October 3rd. So kind of a short turnaround. I think he would be better suited by getting an extra month of recovery, show up in New York, and try to add to his legacy. I think he should try to win all of the majors. Including Rojo's marathon in the spring? I mean, is that going to be a major this year, or you guys like provisionally a major? When I say major marathon, for me, it's going to be major benefit to my pocketbook. I'm not going to be spending a lot of money on the elites. Oh, I thought this whole thing was to have an elite race and you'd fund it by the mass entries. Now it's just a naked money-making venture for Robert Johnson Enterprises. Well, I don't know if I... Well, I guess I should support this since you're my employer and pay my salary. I'm all on board, but... I don't know. I thought like, oh, we'll get Kipchoge. We'll get Rupp. Any elites who really want to spring marathon before Tokyo, you know, you have it at the end of March or something or the end of February and boom, we're in business, baby. Well, if they needed to, to hit a shoe bonus to run a certain time, I'd be happy to have them in my race. Would they have to pay you or pay an entry fee like everyone else, Robert? Or would you comp it? Would you give them appearance fees? How's that going to work? Comp the, I'll comp the non-Nike athletes to my race. Wow. I mean, you know that Nike sponsors a lot of the best marathon runners, Robert. I think you might have a problem if you're asking them to pay an entry fee here. But I do agree with your, with your idea. I mean, I think that would be that would be great. And the one thing is, though, if he runs a spring marathon, if somehow there is a spring marathon that exists, and then he comes back and runs the Olympics, I don't think he'd do a third marathon. And even if he does run the Olympics – you know, a three-month break. Usually he doesn't run races that close together. I guess the Olympics in 2016, he ran 
in London in April and then the Olympics in August. And that was about four months. So I think if there was a year for him to do New York, it would be this year after the Olympics though. So I'd love to see it. Speaking of Kipchoge, I think for like a month, I've been trying to read this email from this doctor in London that emailed me, Dr. Ed Chandy. Have I read this in the podcast yet? I don't think I have. But he said we asked for people with medical advice to call in. I think we showed we showed a we had a call in last week about Kipchoge in London. But it's pretty obvious what happened to London in his mind to Kipchoge as a medical doctor, based only on information from the BBC broadcast, blocked ear shivering after the race and poor performance. It all points to a likely viral infection in absence of any other relevant information. It seems weird to me that no one else is jumping to the obvious conclusion that the man was unwell. I agree. He was sick in London. Is it any more complicated than that? Thank you, Dr. Ed. You think with all the Rona protocols, he wouldn't have gotten it. Who said it was coronavirus? There are other illnesses apart from coronavirus. No, but like you think you wouldn't get a cold because we're all being so cautious. Although, I don't know. Like if this is, I guess none of us have kids of school age, but a friend of mine, her kids sneezed in class and they said, sorry, he's gone for two weeks. I'm like, what? <laughs> for sneezing? Sneeze, no joke. They said, you know, COVID's up in Connecticut, that that's the rule. Um, or he didn't get to take a test. She's like, I don't want to, she's, he got a test last week. So she's kind of against it in principle, but she's like, what's all every sneeze all winter. We're going to get a test. I'm like, well, it sounds like it or keep him out of school for two weeks. So. Well, disparaging my child, my child has started school and that's basically it. We had to get him a COVID test. If they have symptoms of COVID, which is basically any cold symptoms, they're not supposed to be at school. But if you do get them a COVID test, then they'll let them come to school while they're sick. So, you know, that's one thing as a parent, you think a cold lasts two to three days. No, a cold lasts like 10 to 14 days. So unless you want them out of school for two weeks, you're pretty much going to have to get a COVID test. Do these people not know that sneezing doesn't mean you have a cold? Thank you, John. One eight four four. Let's run. Seriously, one eight four four. What is the number, Robert? Give me the number so I can dial it. Eight four four five three eight seven seven eight six. We want to hear from you. We want to hear from Fake Galen Rop. You called into one of our first podcasts a couple years ago. We haven't heard back from you. You can also email the show at pod at let's run dot com. For the record, I think it was Fake Alberto and Fake Ryan Ryan Hill. I'm not sure we ever had a Fake Galen. Oh well, we liked your your fake voices and. If you don't want to support the show by becoming a subscriber, let's run.com slash subscribe. You can let me and the great John Kellogg coach you. We have an update, folks. The college athlete that I am coaching wanted me to take over his full team. He has entered the transfer protocol, and after running a recent lifetime personal best at 3,000 and 5,000, has received a full scholarship to a new college. So thank you, folks. You can save tens of thousands of dollars by joining the Let's Run.com coaching program. Go to letsrun.com slash coaching. We, we kind of, we say we have a waking plan, but basically we can coach you individually if you want it from now on. Wait, did you end up coaching the full team or not this fall? Whatever happened? No, he entered the transfer protocol, said, so we just, co- we focused on him. We had him run a 3,000 time trial and a 5,000 time trial. Both were PRs. Transfer portal, Robert. It's the transfer portal. Okay. John, back to COVID and sneezing, right? I don't think one-off sneeze should be viewed as a COVID symptom. But I was reading, you're the NFL expert. Congratulations to the Patriots, by the way. Three and five. And they've just expanded the playoffs. I mean, the window is open. Super Bowl. We've won the Super Bowl every other year for the last 
three years, like since 2014, 2016, 2018, 2020, even year, baby. Let's go. Did you hear that? John said they've expanded the playoffs. They have not expanded the playoffs. They've only expanded the playoffs if COVID cancels games. So there you heard it. John, once again, rooting for more COVID shutdowns. But do you think Belichick is going to like enlist Confederates in each state to start releasing the virus? Or he's like, all right, time to activate my sleeper cells in the locker rooms and other places and you know, get some of these games canceled. Do you think that's beyond his powers? The more I think about it, this is complete BS. So like there's going to be two extra playoff teams, right? If COVID comes back. So the last week of the season, if you're on the bubble and you're yeah. in the playoff team, just go get COVID and spread it around. That's actually crazy. But I heard, John, the NFL, is this true that their quarantine is only five days, whereas the rest of us quarantine for much longer? Uh, if that's the case, well, I'm just spreading rumors. So someone else research. I don't know if that's true. I feel like you have to have, like, you're supposed to be away for five days and then they can start testing you again. But if you're still testing positive, I'm not, I'm not sure of the rules. Let's admit, COVID is not about science at a, lot of, at a huge level. It's about money. It's about control, fear. Etc. I mean, did you guys see this thing in the college football? Speaking of Clemson, their star quarterback, Trevor Lawrence, he wasn't allowed to play in the game because he tested for COVID like a week and a half ago, but he was allowed to go to the game and stand on the sidelines next to all the That was ridiculous. I mean, travel on a plane with him? Well, Robert, COVID, it's how I mean, yeah, it's more about risk and how much risk we're willing to take because the science says one thing and then people are like, okay, I'm fine with that risk or we don't, there's a range and we just sort of go on, but yeah, it's kind of nuts, but I heard he couldn't play. Not because they didn't think he'd obviously spread COVID because there's some rule. You have to sit out two weeks for your own heart health or something like that. Yeah. He didn't, he hadn't taken a cardio test or something yet. So, uh, all right. Can I mention something that I read last week? Cause you know, we were talking about two thirty one marathons that's actually faster than what Greta Weitz ran to win her first New York City marathon. I think she won nine New Yorks. World Athletics had a good article on her and her New York City legacy and kind of the beginning of the marathon era. It was much more interesting back then. The night before her first New York City marathon, I mean, she was a former 1,500-meter Olympian. They kind of viewed it as a – Fred Lebo, the marathon director, thought she would just sort of rabbit the race and didn't really take her that seriously. Um, but the night before her first marathon, this is amazing. She went out to eat with her husband and she had like filet mignon, ice cream, wine, um, fancy. Oh, here it is. She went to dining at a fancy Manhattan restaurant consuming shrimp cocktail, filet mignon, ice cream, and red wine. And then she goes out and runs a 232 world record. She had no idea where the course finished. She kept thinking every time she saw a tree, she thought it must be Central Park. And when she finished the race, she took off her shoes and threw them at her husband because kind of was – race was more difficult than she thought, even though she set a world record. So back in the day when the stars were characters and less was known about the marathon, it was kind of interesting. Yeah, for sure. Though it's kind of crazy. Like she set the world record and then I was like, Oh wow. She did this. And like, she was drinking wine the night before. And like the rest of our meal, I don't know. I feel like sometimes we overrate what athletes eat the night before a race anyway. But then I'm like, well, the next two years, like she broke the world record again, the next two years in New York and lowered it significantly. So then you think, well, actually maybe that she prepped for it and, you know, was a little bit more prepared. That kind of did have an effect on her performance. Speaking of New York, Christian Coleman's I guess, PR team has a favorable presentation of his three missed drug tests in the New York Times. It is written by... Friend of the podcast, former podcast 
guest, Matthew Fetterman, who had a great book out on Bob Larson last year. I'll link to that in the show notes. But this piece was as sympathetic as it can be to Christian Coleman. I mean, clearly, Matthew like spoke to Coleman's people, his parents. There's a lot of stuff in there that's like totally just not related to the case. Like, I don't know. What do you mean his PR team had a piece? This was a piece by Matthew Futterman in the New York Times. It read like it was written by his PR team. I just read this piece this morning, and I thought it was terrible. Like, it's great to, to present the victims of, uh, or, or the, you know, to, to show the human side of all people. We're all humans. But I, I didn't understand what a lot of this had to do with the drug case. The fact that Christian Coleman was a good student and that he has a mother and a father like, what does that have to do with anything? It totally downplayed the fact that he was that he lied to the investigators about where he was, and then it it, it it includes erroneous information that has nothing to do with it. Like it says that the testers went to his house and didn't knock on the door. If they had, he would have heard it, but that's not true because Coleman wasn't there. So how would he have heard it? Like that that whole paragraph was like fake news in the story. So we need to link to this article in the show notes because I thought it did not make any sense on so many levels. Well, the argument that's being advanced here is that he didn't dope, that he didn't get caught doping. I don't think Christian Coleman's a doper, and they rowing the decision said there's no evidence that he's a doper, and you know they're looking at they're talking to his family, who obviously aren't going to say he's a doper even if he is. They're talking to his coach, his high school coach, his college coach. They're saying he's an upstanding young man. They're saying it's unfortunate that he's going to be banned. Because it, not for drugs, but for this other thing. But I think where the article falls short is, look, he needs to accept responsibility. He, Christian Coleman's not some kid. He's, you know, he's a 24 years old, 25 years old. And he's, he, he owes it as an elite athlete. Part of his job is making himself available for tests. And he didn't do that. He didn't handle his responsibilities. And that's why he's banned. Agreed. I just thought... <laughs> Some of the stuff, like, oh, his family's crushed, Christian's crushed. Of course he is. If you're banned for the sport for three – going to be banned for the sport for, what, four years maybe? Two years. Two years? I guess the, the debate now is whether it's two years or going to be reduced to one year. Again, I just thought this article was ridiculous. I mean, I don't understand the personal – what the personal side of it has to do with the facts. Like, I didn't see the New York Times writing articles after Ray Rice knocked his wife out saying – Oh, his wife and his family are, are are devastated because they're not making any income and whatever. I mean, like that has nothing to do with it. And I've had sympathy for Coleman because I think that the that again, this process needs to be implemented the same every time it's done. I do think you can you can target certain people for more testing. I don't have a problem with that. And actually, the article says that. It says after he won the world championship, he was warned he would be tested more. And he knew he was sitting on two damn tests. So Take it more seriously. But again, the fact they don't call all the time makes me a little bit sympathetic. And if there's something in the rule book, I could see it being maybe reduced. But I, I just thought this article was like, you know, you wonder why people, I don't know. It just, it just seemed a little bit out of left field to me. And his left lane in the New York Times is, it was fascinating. If you look at the most liked comments, they're all bashing Coleman, all of them. Yeah, reading the comments was, um, it made me f- realize I wasn't out of left field just thinking the article was it's just sympathetic to him but like I mean Robert the Ray Rice thing is crazy because the behavior is very different here I guess not having income and so of course people are going to crush they don't have income but uh, I mean what's accused here is very different so I don't think that's a good analogy but 
I mean, like, here's the second most liked comment in the New York Times, just because it's shortest. We all have responsibilities in life, and Mr. Coleman apparently didn't take his qualifying drug testing seriously. Then they actually, so that's fine with me. Then they add, how can we not assume he has something to hide? It doesn't matter if he has something to hide. The rules are the rules. And, oh, you know, they have this thing that there's more testing in the U.S. So, okay, people in a privileged society have more responsibilities, and we're supposed to feel sorry for them? Like, the guy was already, like, on three, two or three missed tests. Like, dot your I's, cross your T's. That's what we told him last summer, and he didn't do it. So he's going to be banned. It's unfortunate, but... Yeah, I mean, it's not just that he was already on two missed tests. He was almost banned. He, you know, some thought he should have been banned if the rules were written in a more sensible way for the same thing a year earlier, and he still got caught. I mean, that, to me, it's just he, he already had his... He got lucky the first time. I mean, they did interpret the rules correctly, but if anyone knew to be diligent about it, it should have been him. Right. And also the one thing that my only piece of the article, like Robert said something about knocking, like maybe the keypad could have called him at home. There's some technical stuff, but it wasn't explicitly said, but if you read the decision, and this is where I have probably the most problem with Coleman. Uh, I, the only way you can read the decision, I think is that Coleman lied in his defense of where he was. Maybe not trying to hide stuff up, but like him going back home and then going to watch, then going to the Walmart, going from Chipotle back home and then to Walmart, you know, all in this like time frame. They're like, that's not possible. So the cover up is worse than the crime. If you just said, look, I wasn't there, I effed up, that's being a man. I would accept that more. But like when he comes up with a defense that apparently isn't true, trying to like say, oh, I was at home when he wasn't. Just that pisses me off more. Now, maybe maybe it'll come out that that's not the correct reading of things, but like, just don't lie when you're caught. Tell the truth and you have some sympathy. But you think that the New York Times, which is obsessed with pointing out the lies of the president, and and many would say for good reason, they don't mention the word lie or truth in here one time. They very, they gloss over the fact that he lied to the the, um, testers. But anyway, speaking of drugs and bans, We've got part two of the Matt Hart interview, which we shared part one a couple of weeks ago with you. And at that time, I started a message board thread saying Matt Hart's new book is great. We'll link to it in the show books. But and this thread has almost 250 posts. And I, I, the thing I focused on was Salaz, Alberto, the book says that Alberto Salazar once tried to kiss Kara Goucher. We didn't talk about that on the show. And also said that Chris Zelensky ran 2659 because of thyroid medications. This thread has gotten nearly 250 posts. People are eating it up. It's fascinating what people are saying about the thyroid and about you know, the Goucher-Salazar relationship. Just to clarify to clarify the book, Robert, Matt Hart does not say that. Alberto Salazar says that in the book. Matt, report, Matt Hart reports it. Just yes. to so I guess two, two different things. Um, in terms of someone – Matt Hart says that someone asked Salazar, how does Zelensky run 2659? And he said, oh, it's because he's on thyroid medications. And then this has led to a huge discussion on the message board about, you know, thyroids. And some people are saying, you know, it's really fascinating what what, what people are saying, you know. And because we know that Chris Zelensky was on thyroid medication, Galen Rupp, Mo Farah, Bob, even going back though, Bob Kennedy. We all saw Dr. Brown. Was Mo Farah on thyroid? Do we know that? Okay, maybe not Mo Farah. Well, fine, take him out. Um, you know, Ryan I'm Hall. I'm not certain. I'm just, I'm just Ryan Hall went to this doctor. Jenny Simpson went to this doctor. 
I mean, someone said, like, what are the odds that 100% of the U.S. sub-27 minute runners and 90% of the U.S. sub-13 runners all required, required thyroid hormone therapy? 100% of the sub-27 runners, there are two. Well, I'm just saying, you know. Um, so it's just an interesting, you know, d- discussion in that. Um, yeah, but I know. think the whole thing we, you know, we talked to Matt about this is – there are different approaches to it. There are some who go and keep going and are willing to put their faith in Dr. Brown or believe, oh, yes, this sounds great. Like Alberto would basically send them out there expecting them to get diagnosed with hypothyroidism and being put on thyroid replacement therapy. Whereas other coaches like Jerry Schumacher and I believe Mark Wetmore as well, who are both very highly respected, their athletes got sent to it, got put on thyroid medication, and then they started connecting the dots and realizing everyone who got sent there was diagnosed with a thyroid condition and started saying, hmm, maybe it's not that all of them have this this rare, or I don't know how rare it is, but that everyone has this condition. Uh, maybe this doctor is shady and just likes doling out these prescriptions and thinks that's what the athletes are coming to him for. So I think the argument is here, Wetmore and Schumacher seem to have gotten wise to it and stopped sending their athletes there, whereas Alberto kept doing it uh, for a lot while longer. It's just interesting on so many levels. Some people think, oh, what? what are the, why are people flying to this doctor? That means they're dirty. Everyone's seeing this doctor. I don't agree with that argument. When I think about my own running career, and I was a B223 marathoner, you know, Weldon and I flew all the time for, for stuff. Weldon and I flew to Ireland to see Dr. Hartman. I flew to Colorado Springs to see this chiropractor. Um, it doesn't mean just because you see this doctor that you're guilty of doping. Weldon saw the same Dr. Gadea that Tiger Woods once saw. So, um, you know, it's a very small running world. When someone gets a reputation, that spreads quickly and people go see it. I mean, when I was at the Jim Ryan Medal of Honor thing, I was shocked. My old chiropractor from DC was there. This guy apparently works on Jim Ryan. Dr. Kulik works on Jim Ryan, you know, um, you know, and myself. But it does make you think about this. And then last week, I was reading this article um, in the UK press on the 60-year-old marathoner, Tommy Hughes. This is the guy that ran 230.02 at age 60. And re- rewriting the record book. Fascinating article. This guy was a big alcoholic like three years ago. And he goes to the rehab treatment. His wife puts him in, gets some blood test, says his calcium's way off. He's got, he gets on thyroid meds. And now he's setting world records at age 60. So I don't know. I mean, but then other people point out, well, look, the world anti-doping looked at thyroid meds. They don't think it's a performance enhancer. They didn't outlaw it. So it's kind of interesting that is this just the ultimate placebo that everyone gets on this thing and runs fast or is it actually necessary or what? And, but again, I don't think just because you go to see this doctor, you've got negative intents. I mean, I had a couple, two runners at Cornell that had low testosterone and I remember thinking we could not get it right. One of them had low ferritin. One of them had low testosterone. No, they, excuse me. They had low ferritin all the time. And I was thinking to myself, I had heard about Dr. Brown. I said, if you really wanted to get well, you would go down to Houston and see this Dr. Brown guy. That's where all the top runners go if they're really struggling. So I don't know. It's just at some level it's depressing. At some level I can kind of defend it. I don't know what to think, but you're going to hear Matt talk about that and some other things. But I was blown away when I listened to the whole Matt Hart interview, and I think for part two is coming up for the, for the non-VIPs, on the podcast two weeks ago. We didn't talk about this Kara Goucher thing. To me, that was shocking. I had heard some rumors that Alberto had one point had tried to kiss Kara Goucher on a plane. Apparently that's in the book. What do you guys think about this? I mean, at some levels, when I heard this rumor a couple years ago, I thought, well, Alberto should 
if he's willing to lose his marriage over this, should bring this out because it could provide motive for the Gauchos being angry at Alberto. If you think someone could say, well, did Alberto, if, if you're Adam, do you think Alberto, did Alberto and Kara possibly have an affair? And would that make them bitter to want to bring down Alberto? Well, the motive thing is good, Robert. You don't even need an affair. You could still, if I'm, let's take the story at face value because we have nothing else to doubt that. And it's about someone's personal life. But if Alberto attempted to kiss Kara on the plane, if I'm Adam, I'm pissed at him and I'd be pissed regardless if something else happened. So yes, I'm glad it made it in print because that could show motive, but they also report suspicious stuff they thought was going on. But I mean, to me, the most like concrete stuff I felt like they had against Nike was more of the like contract stuff. Essentially, they say that Nike said, yeah, we'll we'll look after you when you're pregnant. Then they cut her contract by like 20% or whatever the number was. To me, that was like more damning evidence than the other other stuff. It's just were like, God, we just feel like something's not right. But they they didn't see anything 100% illegal. Yeah, I I didn't mean to imply that this had happened. I was just saying it's interesting how you could argue if you're Alberta, oh, they're just bitter because of this. But then he probably doesn't want to admit to the trying to kiss her. So it's just kind of interesting on a lot of levels. Sort of, I don't know, man. It's kind of creepy though. This is like a father figure to her, and he gets drunk on a plane allegedly and tries to kiss her. Uh, nobody shouldn't be doing that. Well, and they also mentioned that he was Steve Magnus. Basically, said he was obsessed with the size of. Car Gaucho's boobs and was telling her about him about that all the time, which is weird because Kara says like repeatedly she was used to be very close to Alberto. She loved him like a father, and it's just it's unfortunate when you, this relation a coach athlete relationship should be sacred and important. And you know sometimes you see coaches and athletes do turn romantic, but in this situation she was married and he was married, and there's a big age difference. I just think it's it's unfortunate that. That's what he tried to do. Yeah, but humans make mistakes. I mean, I don't know. I'm not going to defend it by any stretch of the imagination. But one thing that I, I disagree with, though, with some of the stuff is when y'all were interviewing him, like, who does a doping experiment on their sons? Again, I'll say to me, the one consistent theme here is Alberto is crazy and he's obsessed. So he, he who sends pills to, their, to Galen Rupp in Germany in a hollowed out book? Alberto does. If one person was actually going to do this test to see if they could be sabotaged, it would be this crazy man, Alberto Salazar. So I, I, that's why the ban to me is just like, okay, yeah, he could be doing it to see how much he can dope Galen. And if you push, if push come to shove, do I think he probably put Andrew gel into Galen Rupp on a massage at some point in his life? If I had to say yes or no, I'm leaning yes. Do I know that for a fact? Absolutely not. But I, I don't know. Like, this guy comes across as a madman that was trying all, all sorts of things. He's obsessed with her breast. Yeah, but he's obsessed with weight, John. I mean, that doesn't, I don't think he's obsessed in a sexual manner. I think he's obsessed with this guy was trying to do all these crazy things and at all times. So great interview, great book. Um, part two coming up, right? Part two is now. We'll link to part one as well in the show notes. But subscribers, before you hear part two, keep listening. Right now, subscriber-only content about my bet with the Wall Street guy on the outcome of the election. This guy actually really believes that Donald Trump will be president, or at least he believed that on Saturday. Plus, I will give one political hot take. Here's part two of our talk with Matt Hart, author of When It All Cost, Inside Nike Running and Its Culture of Deception. 
It's a must-read. We'll link in the show notes to part one and also to Amazon where you can buy the book. This is the definitive book of Alberto Salazar and his reign at Nike and what's been going on at Nike running and American long-distance running the last 20-plus years. Part two picks up with Matt talking about whether rival Nike coach Jerry Schumacher is a source for the book. So previously you said the other coach on the campus, you know, that Alberto came and talked to the other coach on the campus about testosterone. Were you specifically referencing Jerry? And did Jerry tell you that? Did you talk to Jerry for this book, about the book? Yeah, I spoke to Jerry. Um, we, you know, he, he, there's, you know, a little dance you play sometimes with people who don't want to, you know, be attributed and in, in saying anything nasty about their employer <laughs> or their former colleagues. And so, you know, he gave me some background information and told me, you know, that story and, and others. But yeah, it was really eye-opening. I mean, he's a very kind and intelligent man and he's super articulate and it was it was really eye-opening. But, you know, because I couldn't attribute anything to him, I sort of used it for background. We talked about this earlier. Um, and just to corroborate certain stories that, you know, buggered belief. Yeah, and you mentioned... So, Alberto, you never had it. Did you have any correspondence with him for the book? What was your dealings with him? Yeah, I mean, I reached. So, when I started reporting for the New York Times, I reached out to him, of course. Um, and he mostly didn't respond. I think first time I got him to respond was after I went to his office and after I knocked on his front door. Then he sent me an email that said, Hey, you know, deal with. He basically pushed me to a communications person. I don't know if you guys have gotten these emails, but it's pretty common. Uh, where they'll say, yeah, sure, I'll talk to you, but you've got to go through my communi- Nike communications department. And then so I pressed that person. I don't know how much inside baseball the readers or the listeners want to hear, but, you know, that person never got back to me and never set anything up. And I had a week, I had a week's worth of time in Beaverton where I was going to campus every day to try to talk to people. And so I kept pressing that person and they basically wrote back at one point, like, look, we cannot, fi- we cannot fulfill this uh, request to interview Alberto. And, and that was the last I heard about interviewing Alberto, but it was also about his son. So I had sat in the Sebco building and waited for Tony Salazar to come back from his lunch break. Um, and so we had spoken and shook hands and, uh, you know, he wasn't interested, let's say, in, in, in an interview. Yeah. <laughs> but wait, you knocked on Alberto's office door. Was he in there and he just refused to come out or no, what happened? So I'll say I couldn't get up to his office door. There's a, there's a front line of defense with the front desk. So I, I asked for them. They said, I asked for him. They said he wasn't there, but I knocked on his front home door. Oh, okay. And no one, no one came to the door. The dogs freaked out. I mean, my, my hand was trembling with my recorder and I didn't know what to expect. Um, but he never answered the door, but apparently being around his area caused him to email, at least communicate with me in email. Uh, where he wrote back that, you know, we'll do an interview later, but here, deal with this person. And then of course, you know, they never came to fruition and he was embattled at that point, really, you know, doing, you know, he had just finished the summer where he had done his arbitration interviews and nothing had come out yet. Um, so yeah, it's a long story short. I, he never did actually jump on the phone or, or allow me to come see him. Yeah. It would have been way too chicken to go knock on his door. I mean, journalists like Matt Lawton, who's now with the times, I think daily mail, he did that as well. Yeah. Uh, or if I, if my, editor told me to go knock on his door, I would somehow time it to make sure he wasn't there. <laughs> but I have, I guess I've had this crazy fear of Alberto for a long time. I don't know when it started. You, you guys do have the story. You're the first to publish it. I don't think we've ever, maybe now we've put the letter up on Let's Run. Maybe we still haven't. 
about how Alberto's lawyer, and this just sort of shows his obsession, obsession uh, kind of, I don't know, like about Let's Run. I don't want to make this about Let's Run, but well, I'll say it. Yeah, you can allow me to say it. It's it's good marketing. Like like you said, he, he was obsessed with Let's Run. That's true. That comes out in the book. I mean, yeah, he had this line: "Salazar outwardly reviled Let's Run and would remind his athletes to stay off it." But he had trouble following his own advice. According to Kara, whenever she would meet with Salazar in his Nike cubicle, his browser seemed permanently stuck on the site. So everyone listening, go to letsrun.com. Keep your site there. Refresh. Click on the ads. Thank you. Buy our products. Well, and you're going to mention the 2011 Boston Marathon as well. Apparently, like, he was going on Let's Run ahead of the 2011 Boston Marathon and telling Steve Magnus, oh, we need to give Kara more hill training because they say that on Let's Run, that running the downhills is important. And... He wanted to have her run like eight by 400 downhill on the course, like two days before the race. And Steve Magnus had to talk him out of it. I mean, it's just, this is a guy you mentioned. He won the 1982 Boston Marathon. Like the idea that he's going to Let's Run to seek out training tips, it blows my mind. Yeah, it blew Steve Magnus's mind too. <laughs> and I had to corroborate that with other people. But yeah, that that, that happened with the massage therapist who who called uh, Magnus, like, we've got to talk him out of this. This is going to damage Kara too much. But apparently he had run on, read on Let's Run that you need to focus more on the downhill running for the Boston Marathon. But Magnus was like, dude, you've won this race. How? <laughs> Why are you getting advice from the internet? You might, you probably have uh, firsthand experience here. So, yeah, that's just one of the stories where it's like strains your, you know, can you believe this? Is this true? But, you know, I, I went ahead and talked to other people who, you know, were involved and the massage therapist was like, oh yeah, that totally happened. So it's crazy. Yeah. Because even in 2012, this is probably when I first, I don't know, I've had so falling outs with Alberto before then. I, I And I, I probably should have disclosed this stuff because it, it influences how I cover him. Um, Cause I'm like, like he's the biggest thing in the sport. And then I just felt awkward asking him questions. I guess the first one actually was back when Galen was his senior year of NCAAs and Alberto Galen finally won something. He'd been this great athlete with like run fast times. So it was not a winner. And then he started winning everything his senior year indoors mm-hmm. and Galen one day, Alberto took me aside and one day Vin Lanana took me aside and they both ripped into me. They're like, this guy is covered so poorly on let's run. This is ridiculous. And Actually, Alberto was, I thought, way more reasonable than Vin. And I have a totally fine relationship with Vin now because I, I said, Vin, we're not the enemy. You've done a lot of good things in the sport. We sort of worked it over. Yeah. But Alberto, I felt like he was actually somewhat reasonable. And I'm like, what? And he's like, but people were, they were awful and it was bad. They would call him Galen, G-A-Y-L-E-N. Mm. I mean, it's essentially a homophobic slur. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what am I supposed to do? Like, And finally, I went home that night, put in a filter so you could not put gay, G-A-Y, and Rupp in the same post. Like, so you couldn't talk about Tyson Gay and Galen Rupp. So in some ways, Alberto was right. Like, Galen, if you're listening, like, we, we try to do much better with moderating now. Like, we should have done better with you. Yeah. But then fast forward to 2012, they finally have that breakthrough, right? Like, at the Olympics. That's what they the whole program was built about. Mm-hmm. And Rupp won. I mean, excuse me. Faro won. Rupp number two. Olympic 10K. And... I'll never remember. Alberto was pissed at me. He called me Rojo in the mix zone. You talk about him drinking throughout the magazine. I don't, I've never seen a huge drinking problem, but like, I think he definitely had been drinking this time. I didn't think like, I like my beer too. I didn't think anything like it was too much. Yeah. He's like, Rojo, he called me Rojo or something. That's Robert's nickname. And I'm like, whoa, he's upset. 
And then I get home and we get a lawyer from his letter, essentially asking for the names of like, I don't know, I'm going to say over a hundred posters. He wanted to know the IP addresses and the emails. And I'm like, well, if he gets that information, maybe he wants to know someone at Nike's talking about him. Maybe he wants to know like another coach is talking about him. And this whole book showed me how small the running world is and also the importance in anonymity and let's run. Like there are downsides to it, but you could easily triangulate who somebody is if you put enough resources into it. Yeah. I mean, that's a huge topic, obviously. But I mean, that touches upon there's this tension in in journalism when you're um, trying to cover people, you know, in an honest way and you have to see them later or you don't want them to be upset with you and you have they you're going to need access from him later on. Right. And so maybe you hedge what you say. And I feel like because that's not my everyday job, I had an opportunity here to um, say exactly what what hopefully anyone objectively looking at the story would say. But that's a, I mean, I think it's I feel like it's a real problem and uh, covering the sport. I should say, I think you guys do a great job of it. And often you end up on the wrong side and somebody's mad at you, right? But you can logically explain to them, you're covering it in an honest way. Hopefully they're they're reasonable enough to come back into the fold. But, you know, I feel like through the Lance Armstrong era and even early reporting on Salazar, it just sometimes the fans of the sport who become writers of the sport, they're more interested in remaining friends with the top athletes in the sport than they are actually saying, this is the, these are the facts on the ground. And it does the sport a disservice. You know, how long did it take Lance Armstrong to be exposed? And, and that partially lays at the feet of the journalists trying to cover him. And, you know, he would cut them out if, he, if they wrote truthfully about him or, or wrote the wrong thing about him. And I understand that tension. And it's, it's really unfortunate. And it's, it's a plague, I think, right now in sports journalism in general, but specifically run journalism. Yeah, t- two things. Well, one, you pointed out in the book, Alberto knew Lance was doping. He's like, I mean, they were Nike wasn't blind. Alberto's like, he has to be doping. Yeah. But it, he didn't care. And the other athletes were like, whoa, he should be upset that he's doping. But they showed for Alberto, like this guy, Alberto still viewed him as a great athlete. Right. And then the second thing, you're like, oh, how do we deal with it? Well, we just hired John. And then John started interviewing them. Yeah, level of... Well, Alberto generally doesn't like talking to me either, though. I think I've done two interviews with him in my life. You have Darren Treasure sort of plays this... I don't know what sort of role in the book. He's this sort of kind of dark character a bit. And he actually grabbed a recorder from John one time and had this little run-in with John. Later apologized. But oh, wow. is Darren Treasurer still working at Nike? Like, what what is up with him? Sort of, do you want to give people a little background on him and like what role you, you saw played in him? Because his name would come up a lot when we hear from people. But you were the first to sort of put some stories, I think, uh, to writing or more of it. Yeah, well, he's a sports psychologist who Alberto hired to work with Galen and Kara when they were kind of struggling th- through some issues, or at least he felt like they could up their game psychologically, which, you know, rightfully so, is a huge part of the sport. If you don't believe you can win, you're probably not going to. But, you know, the, the more I talked to other athletes, there, there really was a, a weird problem with Darren. You know, he had, had kind of had falling out with Kara. So I should say, when I first spoke to the Gauchers, one of the things Adam told me was, you know, like I was telling you earlier, that he's like, this story is so much deeper and these relationships are crazy. And he said something to the effect of, Darren Treasure and Alberto Salazar tried to break our marriage up. And that's when I thought, oh, this is a story. Like, this is a, this is probably deserves a book now. Like, please explain. And it wasn't just them. There were other stories um, that came out where, you know... It's hard to say because it becomes a he said, she said, and I'm trying to be objective. But, you know, he would often pit the athletes against each other. Um, Begley and, and Kara, I think, at one at one event, you know, 
he kind of created some false tension there. And so there were a lot of stories about that happening. And, um, you know, a couple athletes said they weren't sure if Darren Treasure was the real master of the Oregon Project. I heard that twice because he was so, to their eye, manipulative in the way he managed the athletes and the way he, um, you know, did sessions with the athletes. And, you know, as it came out in the book, you know, he, Darren would go back to Salazar and Magnus and, and he would tell them what they discussed in the session. And, you know, this is supposed to be private uh, sessions between psychologist and athlete. And you go in and sit down with someone like that under the assumption that they're not going to tell your business to other people. And he was, you know, more than one athlete told me he was obviously doing that and using it in a manipulative way. Um, it's, it's sad. I mean, that's the exact opposite of, of what, you know, you would hope your, your team psychologist is doing, um, you know, dealing with him was interesting. He had this, uh, he, he was willing to email a few times. He, he, um, you know, I don't know how much you guys want to know about this, but it's kind of funny. He, he kept calling me the wrong name in my emails. He kept calling me Mike. And, and, and in my mind, I was like, oh, is this like one of those, you know, corporate executives trying to get a little dig in because he's playing warfare. He, he read The Art of War and he thinks this is awesome. And I was able, he, he didn't want to deal with me really. He didn't want to do an interview. And so, you know, a couple months down the road, I sent my fact checker to him. And uh, he started emailing her back as the wrong name. And I was like, oh, boy, he's doing this on purpose. I really started to think that. Now, I don't know that for sure, but it just seemed like one of these art, arts of war moves. Um, and, of course, he said he would review the facts. She sent him a long list of things that he was supposed to review. And, you know, she told me she thought he was never going to respond. He just wanted to see what was in the book about him. And that's totally his right. He doesn't, you know, there's nothing compelling him to sit down and do an interview, but he got a list of facts and then we never heard from him again. And you said, and I had heard this, but you didn't say it explicitly in the book, but you just said it there that like Darren Treasurer essentially tried to break up the Goucher's marriage. I had heard that it wasn't explicitly said in the book. So I'm curious why you said it now and didn't have it in the book. And then, but you did have something that I had heard and never seen put in print. And that was Alberto Salazar tried to kiss Kara Goucher on a flight in 2001 on the way to Daegu. So I, these are separate things. So maybe we should discuss them separately. But I'm curious, like this whole marriage thing, Alberto trying to kiss Adam's wife. Some could argue like, oh, they're just bitter about that. Like, so because th they have no proof of doping at the end of the day. Right. Like they're very suspicious of everything. And then they had the, the stories. I think some of the, the stories of Nike saying, we'll honor your contract. Allegedly, John Capriotti telling Alberto, it's all third hand. I don't know why the agent isn't checking for the gouchers we'll honor your contract when you're pregnant. And then they're like, oh, oops, sorry. I think that's almost as egregious as some of this other stuff that they have direct knowledge of because other stuff is hinted at. But like the treasure marriage thing, why wasn't that explicitly in the book? And do you think the Gouchers have some personal animosity towards yeah. uh, Alberta? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot there. So it was in the book and I attribute it to Adam. You know, I, I basically say this was Adam's opinion and that's because that's really all I could do with it. That was, you know, that was Adam's opinion of what had happened. And so I tried not, I intentionally didn't explicitly say it. And, and I attributed the quote to Adam. Um, so that did make it into the book. And, you know, if you followed this for your readers or listeners who followed it at times, and maybe I should bounce this off you guys at times, didn't it seem as though Adam's anger and vitriol was a bit outsized for what we knew about what was happening? Did you get that drift? I always thought listening to, as the story was reported in the first few years, 
they had there had always been rumblings that there was some sort of romantic involvement or questions about Kara and Salazar and that sort of thing. And it was it never sort of came above the surface, but I did always sort of I was curious about that and Adam was definitely mad and then I think mentioning that kiss or attempted drunken kiss on the flight to Daegu that kind of makes you understand oh this is why he was acting this way because it actually did seem like Alberto tried to make a move on his wife yeah so I mean that's pretty much why I thought it should make the book you know that could have easily been left out I thought it explained some of Adam's anger and also like you pointed out earlier um there's animosity there which you know as you know could could somewhat color your opinion of the team looking back and how much you want to get back at them. So I felt that that was in an odd way, almost fair to Alberto Salazar as well, because it's sort of explaining, you know, maybe this is part of the reason they've been going so hard at the Oregon project. Um, so yeah, that, I mean, that, that tidbit was difficult. And I, like I told you before we started, I, I got, you know, corroborating evidence and four people told me that that, had happened and you know basically contemporaneously she had mentioned it to other people and that's that's how I uh, managed to to uh, fact check that but of course I reached out to Alberto very specifically with that allegation in one email by itself I left him a voicemail I sent an email and so just so you know this is going in the book and I'd like you to you know um, counteract disregard or uh, disagree with it rather or uh, or corroborate it and, and he, he chose not to respond yeah, I think that was very fair, and I think it needed to be in the book because I was reading through the book, and I'm like, oh, if this personal thing ha- – I don't know it's true, but I'm like – I'd heard it. And I'm like, this thing better be in the book. But at the same time, I didn't know it was true. So once it was in the book and you had corroborating evidence, it needed to be there because it clouds the story. And like another time – but also I, I think you were fair. Another time you had some reference to – it was well known a Nike Oregon project was cheating on his wife. I think it was her spouse. I'm not sure what the sex was. Mm-hmm. And I, I was like curious who it was. I'm like, oh, this, he needs to put this in there. But it was like totally unrelated to anything. I think I don't. Yeah. You probably know better than me. It wasn't like a central thing, but I'm, I wanted the gossip nature just because I'm like, oh, this sounds juicy. Then I'm like, leave it for the message boards, you know, like I don't really need this. Right. So I think the Goucher thing was central. It's central enough to possible motivations it should be in there. And also it's like a coach athlete sort of violation. Total violation. Yeah. So I think for sure it had to be in there. A betrayal for sure. Yeah. And the other rumor, you know, I mentioned it because it was relevant to, um, you know, the craziness that the program had, how crazy the program had become uh, without mentioning, you know, who was doing what, who was sleeping with who. All right. Well, Matt, I think you've been very generous with your time. We don't want to, you know, keep you too long. Cause I think it's probably about an hour at this point, but uh, well, well, anything, any other closing questions you have for him before we let him go? Should be like a permanent guest on the <laughs> on the uh, show because th- this is the book I would have wanted to write, been able to write myself. I thought it was really good. I, I guess think. final question. Yeah, there's so much discovered in this book. Uh, hopefully, people want to read it because we're just barely touching the surface of it. It's a good story. It's not just like dry, like. I mean, David Epstein and uh, Mark Daly, that's his name, right, of the BBC, they did a fabulous job of sort of st- starting some of this, telling the stuff, but, like, their stuff was like a piece here, a pit here. You put the whole thing together. It's tremendous. Oh, but I guess, like, yeah. in reporting this book, what was your biggest surprise? Is there anything that just sort of shocked you or that you didn't know or just did it all kind of fit the – it all 
kind of fit the paradigm you were seeing. Yeah, it did. But I was frequently surprised. I mean, talking to Nike's first employee, Jeff Johnson, you know, he, he shocked me in, in a couple ways, but, you know, basically saying uh, Mary Slaney, he could see Mary Slaney doing what she was then banned for. Um, you know, the way he talked about that shocked me. And as you pointed out earlier, the idea that paying athletes under the table at, to him at the time was a bigger, bigger problem and a bigger, a bigger deal than, than possible doping. I thought that was shocking. I mean, Danny Mackey's most of his interview was pretty shocking with the, uh, you know, just sort of, you know, there was a, at the time it hadn't been reported that Capriati had, um, you know, threatened to kill him and beat him up because he had been the blacked out face in the BBC documentary. So I got that before it had really been, I mean, it had been, probably been rumored on, on your message boards, but I, I got that before it had been reported and of course lost it at the same time because it takes so long to put out a book. But that was uh, somewhat shocking. I mean, Alberto's sexual advances, that was shocking how he spoke about Kara's body after she was pregnant. Uh, blew my mind. <laughs> and we've already talked about this, but him looking to the Let's Run boards for Boston training. Um, you know, that when Steve told me that, we kinda, I kind of lingered on it for a while because I was just like, wait a second, <laughs> let's go back to this. Um, he had such little confidence in his own coaching ability that he was obsessively reviewing let's run for ideas. It just seemed like, uh, totally unbelievable. But I mean, th- there's a handful. If you ask me tomorrow, I'll have another list of them, but there's a lot. Yeah. The Jeff Johnson thing. I didn't realize he was employee number one at Nike. Mm-hmm. Cause he, he seemed, there's just a few quotes from him, but he's like, yeah, I totally could see Mary Slaney on steroids. Yeah. And, but it sounds like he didn't stay too long at Nike. Like, did you feel like he had a falling out or just, he just, no, he seemed somewhat What's his story. Uh, I, he helped set up athletics West, but you didn't, you didn't implicate him in anything. Yeah. Well, he sort of was the executive kind of running the thing downstream. So he didn't have his fingers in the pie, so to speak. And this is a period. And I, I maybe spend one sentence on it where he was com- becoming completely disillusioned with Nike and how they were operating. Um, and so shortly thereafter that experience of running the, the running side of things at Nike, he, he left. Um, I think he's still in their good graces. I mean, uh, he's a bit of a New Hampshire, he lives in New Hampshire. Um, and and it, I think he's a bit of a recluse at this point. He doesn't do a whole lot of interviews, but um, and may, maybe that's too strong a term actually. But he, um, when he first got on the phone with me and I explained what I was doing, he kind of joked that, oh, I probably shouldn't talk to you at all. But then once I got him rolling, he had a whole lot of things to say that were interesting. And, you know, as you point out from the, from the beginning of the book to the end, there's, there are certain themes that were ev- evident in Nike's early days, and they have been unable or unwilling to sort of shed them up until this current catastrophe. Well, the book is win at all costs. It is well worth a read. It's the definitive story of the NOP and, uh, you know, more broadly running at Nike, but that's what it focuses on. Really, uh, really worth it. And thanks a lot for your time today, Matt, for coming on. Uh, I think this was great. I had a lot of fun talking to you and, uh, Likewise. you know, a lot of t- other stuff that we didn't get into, but the readers can discover that for themselves, I think. Yeah. Thanks guys for the interest and the time. I appreciate it. I love the podcast. It's been fun listening to it. I learn a lot from it every week. Appreciate it. Yeah. I'm glad you can stomach it, including with, uh, even with Rojo's rants on there, we try to do our best. <laughs> that was the best. <laughs> that's why we tune in oh don't tell now he's gonna his head's gonna be even bigger now that's great uh no but yeah thanks a lot for me